Ah, there we go. Okay, we are going to be looking at the fourth church, which is the church of Thyatira, there in Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. Uh, we will not be covering all of these verses um, today. Uh, I will be teaching again for Bruce. He's going to be going away next month somewhere, and he asked me to teach for him then as well. Um, just a side note to let you know, I will not be here the next few weeks. I'm teaching the book of James upstairs with Mike Mitchell. So he's teaching today, but I'll be teaching the next four weeks in there. So if you don't see me, it's not because I'm skipping class. Okay, yeah. just I want to clarify that. But as we look at this church, just want to mention a couple of things. You know, one of the greatest weaknesses in Christianity today is that so many people are content with the spiritual status quo. Now, they don't like being challenged to strive to be more like Christ because they're very comfortable in the way they're living like this world. They don't want to hear about being more fervent in their love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so there are many who are content in going through the motions and looking like they are supposed to look like. Okay? I've had people tell me, to my face they told me, do not bother me with all this other stuff. I prayed a prayer, I signed a card, I go to church, that is enough. A lot of people, whether you realize it or not, are that way. People that go to church and on a Sunday morning they look like, hey, they look like they got it together, but in their minds that's what's going on. I've literally had people tell me that. I've been in churches where they've said that. But when we come to the church of Thyatira, we see a people who would not understand that kind of thinking. Uh, Jesus commends them for this, and we're going to see this in a moment as we work through this. But having become followers of Jesus Christ, to coast along going through the motions was not an option for them, and it shouldn't be an option for us. It should not even enter our minds. And what we see is that their diligence in ministry is reflected in the fact that their ministry and mercy towards others continues to increase. It continues to grow, and that's the way it should be. The difficult times that they lived uh, live in, well, at that time they lived in, it didn't diminish their faith. It didn't deter them uh, from being involved in serving others. And so this church at Thyatira was very active. They were on the move. And when you look at them, they have a lot of service to God, as we will see. In fact, Jesus said that their latter works exceed the works at first. So they've exceeded what they did. I look at that and I think, man, I, I, I hope and I pray and I wish that Jesus could say that of me. I hope that you would think the same way that Jesus could say that of you. That your latter works are greater than they were at first. Because it should be. We should be constantly increasing. And so when you think about these things, you would look at the church of Thyatira and most probably conclude that this was a great church. However, when we look at the entire letter, we begin to see that this church was a weak church because they allowed corruption into the, the, the church. It was noted for noble qualities, yes, but it failed because of its tolerance. And we see a lot of uh, churches this way. It failed because of its tolerance of theological and moral errors. It's like many churches today are afraid to confront the theological errors. We don't want to offend. We don't want to step on toes. And that's the way this church was. And so as a result, they were, in reality, a weak church, a dying church. And I think it's a warning for us because 
there are many who are blinded and think that things are going great, not realizing that you know, there's some things in life that we sort of turn a blind eye to, and as a result, we become weaker rather than stronger. So I want us to look at the church of Thyatira and see what this danger is and how we can avoid it, because I believe it's a very real danger that many Christians in churches today are blinded to, and they struggle with and they don't even realize it. Right? Now, before we come to this church, just a brief background of Thyatira. This is the smallest town of the seven, and I find it interesting. It was the smallest town, and yet it receives the longest letter. Right? It was the least known of the seven. It was the least remarkable. It was the least important of the seven cities uh, that Jesus wrote to. And there's also, as we do some uh, historical research, we find that there's very little information on the background and the history of this town, Thyatira. The cultural conditions in the first century in this town are virtually nil. You don't hear very much about it. It's very hard to determine what the culture was like in this city. And there's nothing significant as far as military power. There was a military there, but there's nothing significant as far as military or political responsibilities in that town. But one thing we do know about Thyatira is that it had good commercial enterprises. It was uh, an important center of manufacturing. They manufactured different things there, and it was a, a bustling trade center. They were involved with uh, 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 garments, and they made garments, and there was a lot of dyeing of the garments, pottery, and there's also brass working, as we will see. As a result, because of this manufacturing, there were uh, numerous trade guilds that were uh, popular there in Thyatira. These were organized groups, and it was important that you were involved in one of them if you wanted to make a living. Right? And so these trade guilds were the most significant characteristic of Thyatira. They flourished in this city. The problem is, is that these guilds, and there were many of them, these guilds created tremendous problems for the Christians, those who followed Jesus Christ. It was extremely difficult for any merchant, anybody involved in business, to pursue trade if you don't belong to one of these guilds. In fact, I've read that it's next to impossible to make a living if you're not involved in one of these guilds there in Thyatira. Now, you would think that, well, just get involved in one. Well, the problem there is that when you belong to one of these guilds, if you're a Christian, it puts you in a compromising position because the pressure from the guilds was to participate in their pagan idol feasts. Every guild had an idol, and they would have feasts, and you were expected, if you belonged to that guild, to participate in these feasts. And we're going to see more of this later as we work through this letter. So then by this time when this letter was written, the church here in Thyatira was prosperous and active. And its spiritual condition was very similar to that of Pergamum, the last church we looked at. And although they are commended for increasing growth and service, there's a toleration of falsehood and moral compromise, and Jesus Christ condemns that. He condemned it back then, and he condemns it today. So I want us to look at this passage and learn how, can, how is it that we can avoid this. We want to avoid this because in our world today, in our culture today, it is very easy for this to creep into the church and not see it, and we get involved with it. Just because we don't bow down to a statue doesn't mean that we don't worship idols. There are idols everywhere. 
And we may not belong to, quote, a guild the way they did, but the worship of idols is still prevalent. So I want us to look at this and see how Jesus addressed it. So let's look at this passage, starting in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of light are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat th things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her, <coughs> excuse me, behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Long letter, a lot, a lot of things in there, and that's why it's going to take more than just one lesson to cover it. But I want us to look at verse 18, and I want us to take a look at the one who is writing this letter, Jesus Christ, and how he describes himself. And I want you to see this threefold description of Jesus in verse 18. First, we see his deity. Notice what he calls himself, the Son of God. The phrase Son of God occurs only here in the book of Revelation. And it refers to Christ's deity. He is God. He has the right to judge. This is different than when he calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man emphasizes his humanity. You see that in the Gospels often. He calls himself the Son of Man. To relate, help these people to see and relate that he is human as, he, as they are human. But at the same time, we see the Son of God as a title of his deity. And this phrase, Son of God, was a frequent title used by the Apostle John in his writings. You see it in chapter 1, chapter 3, 5, all the way through. Uh, he referred to Jesus as the Son of God. It, it connotes uh, majesty and divinity. And this is an important message to this very weak church for them to center on who is the true God. Not these idols that they worship in these guilds, but Jesus Christ himself, who is God. And as God, he has the right and authority to judge. So that's the first description. Son of God, he is deity. Second, the next thing we see is his eyes. He, call, he says that they, the eyes are like a flame of fire. And the fact that it's a flame of fire, especially in the first century, but it should also uh, be for us, it, it, it uh, shows that it, he is discerning and there's severe judgment. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And listen to what it says about his eyes. It says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. 
but all things, no, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It's a fighting verse. He sees all things. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. And there's nothing more piercing than flaming fire. Because everything yields before it and melts before him. Especially, they would understand it this way, especially in Thyatira because of the brass that they, they make for the soldiers. They melt it and put it together. And they do it with hot flame. And so Jesus having these eyes like flames of fire, they understand that this is judgment. It's piercing. It's severe. And so flaming eyes, they penetrate all things. He consumes all opposition. He sweeps down all obstruction. He presses away everything that gets in the way. He will judge. And so he sees all, and he searches the minds and the hearts of all people. Don't ever forget that. Every moment of every day, he knows, he sees what's going on in your mind and in your heart. He knows the intentions, everything. So never forget, he is the divine judge who sees everything there's absolutely no sin that God will not judge. Keep that in mind, not only for your own life, but when we look out into this world, and we look at this world and we see, how, can, how is it that darkness is constantly um, winning and gaining victory? That may be so, but that's just temporary. Nobody gets away with sin. The Son of God will judge every sin. Praise God that our sins have been judged on the cross. But for those who, are, who reject him, they will face his severe judgment. I note the third description points to his feet. They are like burnished bronze. Now, burnished bronze refers to one of the major guilds of the town. They manufactured bronze for the military in that city. It was one of the uh, bigger guilds, one of the uh, guilds that made the most money. And so burnished bronze uh, feet refer to a warrior who stomps out in judgment. So it's a symbol of judgment where sin is crushed. And so what we have here then is God himself, the Son of God, God himself, who sees and knows all things, who's coming in severe judgment. That's the picture in verse 1. Jesus will judge all corruption. Now I bring that out to you because for some Christians, when you talk about Jesus this way, they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That seems out of character for Jesus Christ. There's a lot of Christians that have a tough time with this kind of view, this kind of a picture of who Jesus Christ is. Why do you suppose that there are Christians who have a problem with this type of view for Jesus Christ? Because he's love. They don't want to deal with sin? Mm -hmm. See, I think what happens is those who think this way, of course. They don't know Jesus Christ very well. They don't understand his perfect holiness. See, we like to think that Jesus Christ is holy, but and it's true, we should. But what does holiness demand? Holiness demands judgment. It demands judgment. If God did not judge sin, he is not holy. He ceases to be God. But not only that, as you said, they think that he's loved. Here's the problem. He is love, but we define love according to our understanding of love, right? 
understanding of the love is just turn your cheek away, turn your eyes away, let things go by, it doesn't matter. Christ is love, yes, God is love, but his love is different than our love. And because of that love, he must judge sin. So rather than this picture being you know, different or being a picture that is not really who Christ is, I say, no, it is who Jesus Christ is exactly. Yes, he is one who loves deeply to the point of dying on the cross. That's how serious he takes judgment for sin. But for those who reject, there will be judgment. And so I believe that this picture here in verse 18 actually displays Christ's holy and just response to those who corrupt themselves with this world. And thus, people in this world who mock God, who think that Christianity is a joke, who do all that, they are not getting away with this. They will face judgment. And believe me, the judgment that they will face, I wouldn't trade places with them for all the money in this world. It is severe. It is severe. My heart breaks for them. And yeah, I get angry. But the reality is, is my heart breaks for them because the judgment they will face is severe. And so the church in Thyatira was in a desperate situation because of the sin of compromise and evil led by a so-called Jezebel-type person. And we're going to talk about that in a few moments. See, this church needs to realize that the exalted Christ is not only aware of every aspect of the situation, but that his judgment is imminent. And we need to see that as well. This is serious stuff. It is imminent. We don't know it could happen any time. And so while many members of the church may be fooled by this so-called person's um, arguments, please understand, Jesus Christ sees through everyone, and the raging fire of his judgment will soon come upon them. That's how serious it is. And it's interesting, too, because this description of Jesus Christ here in verse 18 is parallel to the main local patron god, Apollo, in Thyatira. This god was said to be, uh, he was called the son of the gods, Apollo was. And he is pictured on the city coins as a warrior that's riding a horse, wielding a double-edged battle axe in judgment. The difference, of course, is that Christ's description is true. Apollo doesn't exist. Right? So it's Jesus who's the true divine warrior, and his power is soon to be felt by the church unless they repent. Right? A very strong warning to all of us that Jesus Christ does not tolerate ongoing sin. That's why church discipline is important. Jesus hates sin in his church. Praise God for his grace that forgives, but it's when we tolerate it when we turn a deaf ear to it, a blind eye to it, Jesus Christ hates that. We cannot let sin go by. And so we see then in verse 18 that Jesus Christ will judge all corruption. That's a warning. We should take that to heart. And since Jesus abhors corruption with the world, how can we avoid it? Look at verse 19. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. The point here is that if we're going to overcome this, one of the steps we have to take is that we have to have a 
a love-motivated zeal for service. We need to be involved in serving Jesus Christ, and the motivation is love, love for him. Don't do it because, oh, I have to do it. What's the problem when you serve and in your heart the mentality is, I do this because I have to do it? What's the problem with that? What's wrong with the motive? You're right. What's wrong? That, but when I say something like, I do this because I have to do it, what's the problem? Well, you set yourself up for failure, but that is the very foundation of legalism. God hates legalism. Okay? Instead of doing it out of love, saying, I can't wait because I'm serving him, oh, I have to do it. And when you say you have to do it, yes, you set yourself up for failure because it's legalism. What does God think of legalism? He hates it. He hates it. These people, we read in verse 19, they were motivated out of love. We must serve. And if there's a service that you offer and it's not motivated by love, I would encourage you to stop before you serve and pray and cry out, Oh God, fill my heart with love. I don't want to do this just because I have to. I want to do this because I want to, because it honors your name. That should be our motive. And if it's not, then cry out to God to help you. Because if it's something you don't want to do, but you're doing it because you have to, you're not honoring anybody but yourself. And even then, you're not honoring yourself. Okay, God is not um, glorified. He's not honored. When we say, I'm going to do it because I have to. You know, men, wives, those of you who are married, if your husband came to you and said, come on, let's go out to dinner, you'd say, oh, this is wonderful. And he says, I'm going out to dinner because I have to do it. That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm a husband. How honored would you feel? He'd probably take a pen and crack him over the head with it and say, forget your dinner. Right? But isn't it how often we do that to God? I do this because I have to. But wives, let me ask you something. If your husband comes home and gives you flowers and says, come on, we're going out tonight because I can't wait to spend time with you. You are the most important person in my life. How would you feel? Man, you'd be ecstatic. So why is it that we think we can get away with doing this to God? I do it because I have to. When in reality, we should, we should say, I'm doing this because God is the most important person in my life. He is worthy of it all. That's our motive. That's what's going on here. And I pray that that would be true in our own hearts, that we would serve him from a heart filled with love and compassion for him. And so he commends them. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance. Notice how they're described here. Four words. I'm going to put them all in L's in hopes that you can remember this. Okay. They were described as laboring, loving, loyal, and long-suffering. Notice he says the deeds. I call that laboring. They labor. The word here means that they worked hard. It's to labor. And it occurs twice in this verse to add emphasis. And so the, their service is the spiritual ministry that goes beyond just the functional. They go out of the way to go above and beyond. And that their service was offered with the expression of uh, the, the Christian loving kindness of Jesus Christ. 
And so the service stemmed from love. So notice, they're laboring. They labored hard amongst the, each other. Second is love. They matched Ephesus in their energy, but they kept the warm glow of their love, which the Ephesians lost. Remember the Ephesians were condemned? You lost your first love? Not them. They kept that love. They kept that love. The love was so great that it uh, issued out in service. I know how we need this in our lives. We need this in the church. So laboring, love. Third is loyal. They were faith. They had faith. Faithful. Uh, they were reliable. They served in spite of the criticism. They served in spite of the resistance. So they remained faithful. Call that loyal. And then long-suffering, that's, of course, perseverance. They had the staying power, even under adverse circumstances. They stuck to it under extreme pressure. And by the way, that's what that word means, extreme pressure. They persevered, and this came as a result of their faith. So notice, they were a laboring church, a loving church, a loyal church, a long-suffering church. These are some good commendations. You look at this and you think, wow, this is a strong church. But the best thing that's said about them is that their latter works exceed the first. In other words, the church at Thyatira was a growing church, not so much numerically, but in those Christ-like qualities. They started out and they just continued to increase in what they did in their service. And so they had learned that the Christian life is one of growth, and progress, one of development and spiritual increase. Merely maintaining the status quo was not an option. Totally inadequate. We can't just maintain the status quo. In fact, I would say in Christianity, there's no such thing as status quo. You should always be moving forward. And so in these qualities, they were progressing. Uh, they continued to move forward. And so their faith had increased. Uh, their knowledge of God and his ways and the confidence of breeds had deepened and it expanded to move them to service. But doctrine hadn't gone merely into their heads. It energized them at some points. So we learned from the church of Thyatira that the Christian life is a never upward trek toward greater heights of service, greater heights of love, and being born again is only a beginning, not an end for them. So, I want to put the first, uh, each of these churches that we've looked at so far, there's a positive thing. And I want to just give you four things that, sh that we should be striving for in our lives that have come from these churches. Okay? In Ephesus, we learn doctrinal orthodoxy. They were theologically accurate today focused on theology, making sure they had it right. This was important to them. They were orthodox in their theology. We should be too. That's the church in Ephesus. The church in Smyrna is suffering for righteousness' sake. They were suffering for righteousness' sake. They took a stand and they refused to compromise, even if it meant that they lose their lives. And many did lose their lives for the sake of Christ, but they did not compromise. So in Smyrna, there is suffering for righteousness' sake. And in the world we live in, this should be true about us as well. Then in Pergamum, we have great love. We have great love. And I pray that that would be true of us, that our love 
would increase. So much so that it would motivate us to serve one another, to serve in this community out of a love for Christ, out of a love for one another. And in Thyatira, we have growth and development. It's ongoing. It's not static. And I pray we never become static in our relationship with Jesus Christ. That it's ongoing. It's growing. It's moving ahead constantly. Stirring us up to greater and greater works. So we see these positives in each of these churches. And I pray that they would be true of us individually as Christians, but also as a church here at Lakeside. Now, if we compare this church to Ephesus, Ephesus had, excuse me, godly zeal for sound doctrine and holiness. The problem is, is that they lacked love for Christ. So I would call that cold orthodoxy. They had orthodoxy, they had good theology, but it was cold. It didn't move their hearts to love. See, I love theology. That was my major in seminary. I love theology. I love reading and studying theology. But the purpose of theology is not just to have a big head full of theological understanding, but it's to move the heart and to stir the heart. So I love to read the Puritans and their theology. It brings me to my knees constantly in tears. Don't allow yourself, don't allow yourself to get caught up in cold orthodoxy. We get good teaching at this church, good preaching, good theology. Don't allow it to become cold orthodoxy. It's very easy to fall into. It's very easy to boast, look what we have at this church. And we compare ourselves to other churches and we think, oh, how great we are. Yes, fine. How is it impacting your life? Don't become like the Ephesians. But in Thyatira, they had a great zeal for service that was motivated by love. That's true. Something the Ephesians should have had. But we see that they lacked zeal for sound doctrine. And that's the problem. They had doctrine, but it didn't impact their lives to the point of making sure it was pure. And so the church needs to have zeal for both of, uh, both of these, or they will lose the capacity for ministry. So notice, verse 19, we need to have this love-motivated zeal for service. Next, I want us to look at verses 20 through 23, because this is where their problem was. This is where the problem was. Now, I want you to see that when you read through verses 20 through 23, the emphasis is on truth. The emphasis is on truth here because, you see, they had, they didn't have true, deep theology to the point of correcting it. They just allowed it, they allowed false teaching to creep in. See, when your theology is simply just that, you will allow wrong theology and it won't bother you. You don't want to step on toes. So we need to have a zeal for sound doctrine. Notice in verse 20 and 21. <coughs> Excuse me. But I have this against you that you um, uh, tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. So what we see here is this Tragic and very sad reality that after reading all of this in verse 19, all of this commendation, there's moral compromise in this church. Think about that. They have all of this going for them, but then note what's devastating moral compromise. Note the words that Jesus opens up with in this section I have this against you. Think about that. 
Those are frightening words from, uh, from the Son of God himself. I have this against you. So Jesus here is going to reveal a cancer that was destroying the church. I love what John Stott says. John Stott says, In that fair field, a poisonous weed was being allowed to luxuriate. Never knew that was a word. In that healthy body, a malignant cancer had begun to form. An enemy was being harbored in the midst of the fellowship. Think about that. He's right. In the midst of that incredible fellowship, there was this enemy that was increasing and influencing other people. And they didn't do anything about it. And so they are accused here of giving free reign to a woman whom Jesus called Jezebel. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot of discussion about who this is or what it represents. It may have been a particular woman in that church. It could have been a particular person. It could, have been a, uh, it could also refer to a particular group of people that was bringing it in. We're not exactly sure. It's not uncommon for John to use such analogies. Most likely, it was probably some, uh, some woman that was leading this misunderstanding. We don't know. The, the issue is not who it was, but what was happening. Okay, keep that in mind. So this person was very influential in getting God's servants to compromise with the idolatrous aspects of pagan society. You know, from her perspective, it's, it's okay. We're under grace. We're forgiven. A little bit of compromise is not going to hurt. It's that kind of thinking, right? And so the name Jezebel had become proverbial with wickedness. And they had tolerated all that this person stood for, which is a grave danger for the church. This woman or this group of people, this person, was a wicked and dangerous influence in Thyatira as Jezebel had been in Israel in the Old Testament. They had been influencing some of the church to participate in the feasts. And many of these feasts included not only worshiping of idols, but it included immoral acts. And so they taught that freedom in Christ allowed them to belong to a trade guild. And with that, also participation in these immoral acts is okay. Because you're, this is how God is providing you to make a living type of thing. And notice how she got her influence. She calls herself what? A prophetess. She calls herself a prophetess. In other words, this person, this woman or this group of people, claimed that their teaching was a direct message from God. God spoke to me and said this. And they were listening to her. And know how careful we need to be of so many people today who call themselves prophets and claim that they utter the word of God. That God gave them a new revelation. We see this in the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement. It's very prevalent. They even call themselves prophets, so-and-so, prophetess, so-and-so. And they claim that they have this divine word and people flock to these, to these people. It's dangerous. Very demonic. Very demonic. You know, and I've been told, oh, who are you to criticize? I'm not criticizing. I'm just telling you what the word of God says. It's not me. It's the word of God that you take this up with. If what a person declares is not directly from God's inspired word, then we don't listen to it. Okay? A true prophet of God will speak God's word. God will not give us, quote, new revelation because his word is final. It is complete. We're warned at the end of the book of Revelation. 
that if we add to this book, then we receive the judgments that are written in it. God's revelation is enough. And I don't need some person coming to me and telling me, well, God gave me something new. No. God gave me what I need to know. It's in his word. But this woman claimed to be a prophetess. And this church at Thyatira allowed it, and it corrupted the church. Again, John Stott says, if the devil cannot conquer the church by the application of political pressure or the propagation of intellectual heresy, he will try the insinuation of moral evil. And that's what he was doing here. Infiltrated with somebody who claims to be of God and say, it's okay, it's okay. And face it, in the culture we live in, we tend to like to hear that, that it's okay. It's out of love. We love one another. So it's okay if we participate with this and encourage one another in this. That's the world we live in. And that's the world we have to stand against. And it's interesting, isn't it? When you look at the object of the reprimand, Jesus' rebuke is against the church, not against this Jezebel person. Right? He's not rebuking the Jezebel person. He's rebuking the church because it's the church's fault. What was the problem with the church? They allowed it in and they allowed it to keep going. But in reality, the moment you see it, you stop it. You confront it and you remove it. And so he rebukes the church because they allowed it to keep going. See, the church in Ephesus can bear the presence of falsehood. But again, they lacked love. Thyatira had love, but they tolerated false evil influence. It resembled Pergamum. Pergamum was the same way. So although they abound in love, they lost their sensitivity to error. They compromised the glorious truths of doctrinal and moral uprightness, and that's the problem. Think about Jezebel. Remember who she is? There in the Old Testament, you read about her in 1 Kings. Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, who was one of Israel's most wicked kings, right? She was a Canaanite, and she led Ahab away from worshiping God. She got Ahab to uh, spread and promulgate this uh, idolatrous teaching throughout Israel. And she even incited Israel to compromise and be sexually immoral by worshiping the, the Baals of that time, those gods. And she was heavily involved in the worship of uh, Astarte. If you've ever heard, uh, or Ashtaroth, it's where some have claimed that we get the word Easter. It was a, a, a false god that um, uh, involved sexual immorality for worship. She supported over 800 prophets in her cult. Any prophet of God that she'd get her hands on, she would kill. She even tried to kill Elijah. Couldn't get her hands on Elijah. And largely because of her influence, it was said of her husband Ahab, said this, and I quote, He did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's how evil Jezebel was to corrupt not only this man, but the entire nation. And her death, if you read about her death, reflected the deep wickedness. Because her death was so, it was unthinkable. She was thrown out of a window, where then she was trampled by a horse. And then when an attempt was made to recover the body, it was discovered that the only thing that was left of her was her skull, her feet, and the palm of her hands. That's how God judged her. And according to 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 36-37, we read that the dogs had eaten her flesh in fulfillment 
of Elijah's prophecy. Elijah said, this is what's going to happen. Let me read. Verse 36, therefore, they returned and told him, that's Elijah. They told him, and he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, in the property of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field in the property of Jezreel, so they cannot say, this is Jezebel. In other words, you couldn't recognize her. That is how wicked and evil this woman was. And this very same type of person is in the church. And the church welcomes her in and has her have the influence that she does. That's why Jesus Christ takes it so seriously. Very important. Now, although the original Jezebel had died more than a thousand years prior to that, we see the spirit of Jezebel was still living on. Right? Her influence was still there. And so Jezebel was the epitome of subtle corruption. She was the symbol of immorality and idolatry. And so this person in this church who was doing this was arguing that some degree of participation in these guilds worship services are okay. They are okay. It doesn't matter. It's, it's permissible. And thus, as a result, many Christians, because she claimed to be a prophetess, many, many, though, many of those who claim to be Christians in Thyatira participated, thinking that it's okay. They had been allowed to flourish in the church, and as a result, many in the church followed. And again, the problem centered on the guilds, right? For people to maintain their livelihood, membership in these guilds were very, very important. And this city had a guild for every trade that there was. You name it, they had a guild for it, and, it, and you had to participate in the feasts. And all the guilds and patron deities that were there, the Christians had to, if they wanted to participate uh, in, the, in, the, in the manufacturing, in the business, they had to participate with this. Huge problem. Because whenever they refused to participate in one of the feasts, they would face the anger of the pagan uh, uh, people around. And thus, as a result, they would suffer financially. Many would lose their jobs. And so the question is, if you're in that situation, it is the only job you had, and you're trying to support a family, what do you do? It's very difficult. And that's why many people compromise. So no doubt many in the church welcome to this prophetess in who gives them permission so that now I can keep working and I can support my family. I'm still okay with God. That's what was happening. That's how difficult it was. It would lead to, if they didn't, it would lead to uh, ostracism. So it's easy to convince yourself that this was acceptable if you maintain your Christian profession. Yeah, I do this, but I'm still a child of God. I still believe in Jesus. That's what was happening. And so there was nothing wrong from their perspective for a Christian to take part in these festivals. Because after all, I have to, I'm, I'm commanded in Scripture to support my family. I have to provide for my family. And so the compromise would be uh, easy. And also they're taught that idols, you know, in, in their belief, Paul says, what are idols? Idols are nothing. They're empty. So if I worship something that's empty, what's the big deal? See, you begin to compromise. It's very easy to compromise when your um, life depends on it. And so the complaint of Jesus Christ lies in the unhealthy degree of toleration that they granted to this person. And he says that these believers were led astray. Notice in verse 20, and leads my bondservants astray. The verb here means to seduce a person into sin. 
So they were seduced into going into sin, and they didn't even realize they were in sin. And so this Jezebel person is seen as a, a satanic force claiming the Spirit's authority because I'm a prophetess. And as a result, they led many, this person or these people led many of God's people astray to heresy. That's the reason why it cannot be tolerated. That's the reason why we have to stand strong against it. All, all false teaching must be confronted regardless of how they react. And if it gets to the point where they have to be asked to leave, then they leave. We remove them from the church. So it's, it's important that we confront it. And, and even in this context, we see that it's not that every person in the church accepted this teaching. Not every person in the church adopted this lifestyle. Because uh, there, there are some that didn't. But Jesus mentions, notice, her lovers and children in the following verse, which tells us that there's a number of people that did follow her in that church. And thus, it would have formed a distinct group within that church. And that distinct group was growing and it was tolerated by others. That's the danger. Remember what Jesus said? A little leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. And that's what was going on. And that lump was getting bigger in that church. Sam Storm states, Whether one or many, the presence of such corrosive and corrupting influence in the church simply cannot be allowed. And I agree. I agree. It has destroyed many a church. And that is the goal of Satan. To destroy the church. That's what he desires. And notice in verse 21, God did not judge her yet. Why? Because he gave her time to repent. Don't miss the stunning display of God's grace. This person or persons, whoever's involved in this wickedness, was given the opportunity by God to turn from their ways to receive the salvation of God. See, by all accounts, this person should have been cast into hell, right? Immediately, removed. But then so should we. Praise God for his profound patience, his indescribable grace. Yet even with this patience, how did this Jezebel person respond? Refused to repent. This person was happy with their teaching and their influence. Even with this gracious offer, she and those who followed her refused to repent. So if this church had a zeal for proper doctrine, it would not tolerate this woman's teachings. As a result, the church would not be as weak as it was. And so we have to understand, and if there's one thing you, you, you've been told and you should remember, is that, <clears throat> is that wrong doctrine always, always, always corrupts. Wrong doctrine always corrupts. That's what was happening here. And so the world today is full of religious shysters, false teachers, and we need to reject them. Many claim to be that uh, many claim that they speak for God. They don't. And don't listen to people who say, "Who are you to judge?" What did Jesus say? You shall know them by their fruit. That's a judgment statement, is it not? And so when people tell me that, who am I to judge, I say, all I'm doing is looking at God's word and looking at the way they live, and they don't match up, therefore, I reject them. All right? That's what we need to do. And even Jesus said that in the last days, there's going to be a rise in what? False teachers. Right? 
So we should expect it. That means we need to be more aware. Be on the alert. They're out there, and they will creep into the church. They will creep in. Unawares. So we have to be those who don't tolerate it. In fact, in the name of love, we need to remove it immediately. We need to remove it from the church. We need to remove it from our own lives. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you watch on television. Personally, for me, in my opinion, this is just me, I wish that all preaching on television would go off. They would just turn it off. Because the majority of it is worthless. There's a few good ones, but the vast majority is heresy. And too often, Christians don't know the difference. Please be careful who you listen to. The scripture is not clear on how it happened. He gave them times what we know. Whether they heard it from somebody confronting them or not, we just don't know. The, the text doesn't tell us. It may be that there was a few that tried. But, you know, when you have that kind of influence and that kind of power where many are starting to follow you, you're not going to listen to people like that. And that's probably what happened. And it happens today all over. That's the warning. And we're going to pick up with this next time I teach again. But keep in mind how, um, uh, how easy it is to fall into this type of sin. And Jesus Christ hates it. He sees and knows all things. Right? With that, Terry, will you close us up and say, please, thank you.